Right. Um, same goes for me, of course, a great pleasure and a, and a privilege to be here and to be talking to you about um, an issue that I've, that I've come across as a, as a spin-off, really, of my, of my doctorate. My doctorate focuses on the political economy of the military Islamist al regime in Sudan. Um, and one of the key um, uh, elements of the political economy uh, in Sudan is, of course, the Nile River. Uh, put simply, for many thousands of years, uh, control over water um, has equaled control over people. Um, and so my doctorate sets out to understand the links between political power um, and, and water policy uh, from a historical perspective with a specific uh, focus on the current regime. But as I was researching this, um, you know, there were all these reports, all these events, all these media uh, communiques uh, coming out on, on Darfur and um, increasingly opposing the narrative of Darfur as a straightforward genocide uh, between uh, Arab uh, pastoralists on the one hand and, and African farmers, but rather attributing the violence that we've seen, particularly since 2003, to climate change. And what I want to do in this, in this talk, in response to this, um, to this thesis, this idea that climate change environmental scarcity, as Karen has said, somehow causes conflict, is raised three provocative uh, points with you. The first is that the two conventional ideas in the literature, both what I call neo-Malthusian accounts and liberal accounts of the links between environment, development, and conflict, are not just misdiagnosing the problem, uh, but are also offering very problematic solutions, and I'll try to show that in the case of Darfur. Secondly, that particularly regarding climate change, that this narrative is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition to explain uh, the prevalence and the intensity of violence in the case of Western Sudan Darfur. And thirdly, that the debates we're having about these things are not just academic debates that we can freely have on the Thursday evening seminars in Oxford, but they can actually be hugely disempowering for large numbers of people. And that what we often see as, as part of the, of the solution, which is development or sustainability or inclusiveness, can actually be part of the problem. Now, starting with these, with, these, with these narratives and these ways of thinking about the linkages between conflict, development, and environment, um, and is, is looking at this, this, this first paradigm is what I would call the mainstream account. And the mainstream account essentially is technocratic, and what that means is that men and nature are separated from each other, i.e. they need to be studied in isolation, in strictly positivist, rigorous terms. Development is very much seen as something that is apolitical, i.e. development needs to be applied as if it were clinical medicine, hence a proliferation of terms like surgery, intervention, diagnosis, cancer, etc., a, a vocabulary I think many of us are very familiar with. Um, this, this account overall is also relatively market-oriented. It believes in incentives. It believes in, in price signals. And it says that the central problem in the linkages between environment, conflict, and development, the reason why things go wrong, is the so-called tragedy of the commons. Intuitively put, you have a water well. Too many people are using it. There is no price to pay for the water, which means that there is an incentive for people to consume ever more, even though collectively it's not in their interest. And so the water, of course, after a while runs out, and people start fighting over the water. This is the intuition. And this is basically what underpins most of the thinking on these linkages. Now, a third sub-dimension of this approach 
uh, focuses more on institutions. I can't told us about rules, about institutions, about local governance. Uh, but again, the focus is very much on win-win situations, on cooperation. Overall, a very optimistic uh, assessment of what is, what is really going on. The flip side of this is a very pessimistic assessment of the links between environment, conflict, and development. And this is a tradition that goes back to the uh, 18th century, early 19th century economist, Thomas Malthus. Uh, the idea of limits to growth, i.e. population um, is at one, something's got to give at one point, population keeps rising, increasing pressures on the natural environment, but also on the human capacity to find solutions to this. And after a while, we, we move into a, a resource crunch, where scarcity sets off an internal security dilemma. Again, going back to the water well, Different groups notice that the other group is consuming more and more water. They start consuming that too, and they start fighting over that water because water is, of course, existential. It's not just any other resource. It's a very important resource. And so we get the kind of dynamics that Hobbes described in, um, in 17th century uh, England. We get this all over the, the, the third world in, in, in the Malthusian uh, way of thinking. Uh, the prediction then is that environmental conflict uh, doesn't just occur both within and between countries, but will increase, increasingly occur uh, in the climate change era. As climate change changes the water cycle, and in many cases leads to both an increase in droughts and an increase in floods, it is likely to trigger more of these dynamics. Now what I propose is a third perspective. It's a perspective that neither goes with the blind, naive optimism of the liberal account, nor with the kind of alarmist pessimism and dystopian account of the Malthusians. And this alternative is an alternative that recognizes, first and foremost, that knowledge is power. That knowledge, in many cases, is not objective and cannot be assessed through strictly positive means. That means that science and values are really co-produced. They are not independent from each other. They both have value, but what is key to understanding is how they are co-produced. The second implication of that is that narratives, whether about climate change or about conflict or about development, often reveal more about the messenger or the messengers than about any objectively analyzed empirical realities. And that means that we've got to be very skeptical when it comes to conventional wisdom and intuition. The second point is that I very much disagree with the liberals. I mean, violence is real. A lot of people experience violence on a day-to-day -day basis. But what is important when we think about violence is that we focus on extended and multi-scalar processes as opposed to on individual discrete events. And this is again where I think that then the Malthusian uh, narrative is, is a problem because it tends to focus on one single moment. It doesn't look at the entire chain of political economy and power politics that might tell us more about what's, what's really going on. And so fundamentally, I suggest that when we talk about scarcity or about abundance, that we see it as endogenous, that we don't see scarcity as an external variable is something exogenous that suddenly causes a catastrophe, but as something that is a function of political interests, of political economy, but sometimes also of discourse. And the key question, therefore, is scarcity for whom? Of course, abundance for whom is, a, is another question. Now, applying this to the Sudanese context, what does all of this, uh, what does all of this mean? The region we're talking about is, is Western Sudan, uh, the three states of, of Darfur. Whereas I told you, uh, there, there are really two competing narratives. On the one hand, the genocide narrative, and on the other hand, this narrative. 
And this is a narrative that's, that's increasingly gained traction as it's been backed by some very influential sources. Just quoting here the UN Secretary General, who describes the Darfur conflict as an ecological crisis, i.e., yes, there is politics involved, and yes, there are all kinds of international local agendas, but fundamentally, the root cause, as he calls it, is, lies in, in ecology. Uh, a very influential advocate of this kind of thinking is Jeffrey Sachs, a man a lot of you are undoubtedly very uh, well acquainted with. Um, Jeffrey Sachs gives a slightly longer, slightly more academic uh, slant to this, this idea. But essentially what Sachs says here is we have population growth, we have the inability of the population to manage resources, and therefore it spirals out of control. And the key link here is the decline of rainfall which starts at the end of the 1960s. So what Sachs says is we have a population rising in Darfur, we have rainfall declining, therefore people must start fighting. What is key here is this thinking about the tragedy of the commons, people run out of resources, and they start killing each other. Now there are three big mistaken assumptions, I would argue, in this, in this narrative, not just in Darfur, but in many conflicts that are deemed to be environmental clashes. The first point is a point that Karen also made, is that there is a supposed strong correlation between declining rainfall and violence. It's worth pointing out that in the Sahara as a whole, including Darfur, the 1990s, which is when violence is on the increase, they were actually remarkably wetter than the 1970s and 1980s, which were far more peaceful. So there's a bit of a timing problem, unless, of course, Sachs and other people are going to be able to explain to us why violence happens 10 years after the rains fall in a particular way, it's not quite clear why we should be concerned with this correlation uh, at all. Um, the second point is, there is a hidden assumption in a lot of the literature, including about Darfur, about an inherent antagonism between pastoralists and cultivators, i.e. it is assumed that these are people who are destined to clash. Some people with a herd, might be cattle, might be camels. Some people have land, obviously they are going to struggle over, over land, over water. Somehow it seems to be in the DNA of these people to want to kill each other. Yet what is really happening is that most of the time, these are people who are pragmatically cooperating. These are often people who live in symbiosis. For example, a lot of uh, cultivators might well do with the manure that comes from the pastoralist herds. And so what, what we need to explain is the scarcity of violence, not the abundance of violence. And if there is violence, why does that suddenly occur? Where does that come from? Might there, for example, be a political reason or something to do with the agency of local elites? So th this kind of thing, none of that you'll find in environmental conflict analysis. The third assumption that's really problematic is that scarcity is an act of God, i.e. scarcity is something external to our model of explanation. It's something which, which you know, has an impact on our model but that is, is never really taken into account, is never really explained. What I'm saying here is that we need to look at how scarcity, in many cases, is man-made, i.e. how it is endogenous to the model. Let's apply this to the case of, uh, of Darfur, uh, Western Sudan. Now, Western Sudan is a formidably complex place. I'm not going to try to give you a five-minute overview of, uh, of that region. But what I do want to highlight is that when we talk of scarcity, whether it's of land or of water or of political rights in the Darfurian context, that there is a long and very complex story that is almost never told. What, for example, environmental conflict advocates never talk about is, is about the, the roots of marginalization. Now, why is Darfur so shockingly, as, as I show here, 
Why is Darfur so much, so much poorer than the rest of Sudan? Why are there such incredible gaps in literacy, in health in, in healthcare indicators, in per capita income, in per capita expenditure by the central government than in the West? And the reason is, of course, that there's long been a, a struggle in Sudan over, over, over supremacy, over who, who gets to control the national party, whether it's Western Sudan or the people who live closer to the Nile, to the river. Again, this kind of explanation is not something you'll find. Secondly, looking at, at the local level, when today we talk about people clashing over who gets to own this land or control this, this water well, something that's worth bearing in mind are the reforms of the 1970s by a man called Jafar Nimeri, who was the, uh, the president of Sudan at the time, was a socialist, who identified Sudan's root problem as the dominance of two, net, of two types of, of sects, the Ansar and the Hadmiya, which are religious sects that dominated most of the Sudanese uh, countryside for many, for many generations. And he said, as long as these sects and their, 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 their commercial networks control most of the countryside, their loyalty or the loyalty of the people will never be to me. I need to uproot these networks and create a class of faithful clients to me as a central patron in Khartoum. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to do two things. On the one hand, I'm going to abolish native administration, which was a system of indirect rule that the British had left, and by which Khartoum indirectly ruled Darfur. There was no centralized grip over, the, over most of the, of the land. And secondly, it's by working on this Land Registration Act, which essentially nationalized all the land in Sudan. And what that meant in Darfur was that you could now insert a local bureaucracy which could make appointments as to who could own which land and where, and who could use the water. Now again, all of this was very much political logic, but of course local people were told, in case they had the need to move, not that this was part of political reform, but that they were an obstacle to development. That these local people who had been farming the land for generations were really not getting it, and really not working along the idea of inserting Sudan in the global economy, making it a breadbasket. You know, Sudan needed to produce more food, so you need to leave your land, because what we're really doing here is, is development. And so the narrative of development in, in Darfur is experienced as very problematic, because it's been used as an excuse to chase people of their lands. And people very quickly understood it was about creating a new class of bureaucrats loyal to Khartoum, as opposed to lo lo loyal to, to local people or local, local interests. Now, there's a whole range of other elements that one can discuss in relation to the violence in Darfur. Um, it all comes essentially to this, to this plea I make for a multi-scalar analysis, i.e. just a local analysis or just a national analysis or just a regional analysis will not do. What's important when we analyze the complexity of a conflict is to understand the linkages between various levels. It's to understand that the civil war in Chad and the collapse of the Soviet Union are in many ways as important to understand what goes on in Darfur as the manipulation of ethnicity on a national level because there was a power struggle within the national, national regime. The national regime has for a long time, the Ingaz regime has for a very long time uh, played on ethnicity and promoted certain groups and then promoted other groups. But that in and by itself is not enough to cause anything or to, to explain anything. We also need to see it in terms of local opportunism. Local elites who seize on opportunities they see at the national level to promote their own petty agendas. That too is part of the explanation of violence. So when they get a scarcity narrative, they can suddenly hide behind this narrative of, oh look, there is no more water or no more land, to push forward their own ideas, their own agendas. 
And so it's not just a matter of an evil elite in Khartoum or an evil world economy. It's about understanding how these, how these various factors interact. And so I, I want to leave you uh, with three or four um, uh, observations uh, at the end of my talk about conflict in Darfur, but conflict more general. Which is that first and foremost, conflict is, the, is, the, is a product of multi, multiple trends and, multi, on, and needs to be assessed on multiple levels. And that goes both for the diagnosis as well as for the solutions. Trying to impact only on one level will almost certainly uh, fail, particularly if you look at how local people uh, experience conflict, uh, violent conflict in, in particular. The second thing is that the, the solution advocated by people like Ban Ki-moon or Jeffrey Sachs is almost always likely to backfire. The history of Darfur is the history of a very problematic engagement with central government, and particularly with the, with, with, with the notion of, of Khartoum. So the idea that somehow we need a peace deal and then Khartoum can roll out government services and can build schools and perhaps relocate certain industries there is almost certainly to be treated with great skepticism because historically, when the central government has come to Darfur talking developments, it's typically meant trouble. This is the intuition behind it. The third point for a lot of people is that the international community is not your savior. Again, historically, when people in Darfur have been told about involvement of the international community or being part of a global economy, this has been a problem. It's led to disempowerment, it's led to um, expropriation of land, um, it's led to them losing their, their local administration structures. This is, uh, again, to be treated with a lot of skepticism. And finally, and this is really the central point, um, rather than talking about objective notions of scarcity or um, bottom uh, you know, baselines or, or certain statistics, what we really need to look at is subjectivity. In other words, we need to look at the politics of conflicts, at the different narratives that exist simultaneously, and not necessarily, we, we need to stop uh, prioritizing one narrative over another. Earlier on in the discussion, I made the parallel with World War II. You know, there, are, there are 15 or 20 different ways of explaining what happened during the Second World War, and probably all of them contain a, 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 a bit of the truth. Almost none of them explain all of it, but all of them have, have an element of truth, of course, depending where they, where they come from. And I would argue, again, the same goes for Darfur. It's this multiplicity of, of narratives that is important, and that will also shape the way we think about, about possible solutions, refusing easy solutions, but emphasizing this complexity, I think, is, is perhaps not the um, most convenient um, answer to uh, the question the seminar is concerned with, but I think almost, uh, almost certainly the right one. So thank you very much.